for today. We're doing the Satta Surya Sutta, aka the most terrifying sutta in the whole of the Pali Canon. <laughs> the Seven Sons. In case you thought you were going to have a nice peaceful sleep tonight after the sutta class. You wake up in the middle of the night screaming as the sun's burning the flesh off your bones. That's the kind of effect that we want to get by reading the Buddha's words. <laughs> All right. Have you had a chance to read it before? Before the thing? No? Okay. So we'll, uh, we'll start by reading through the sutta. On one occasion, the Blessed One was living in Vesali at Ambapali's grove. And there the uh, Blessed One addressed the bhikkhus. Ambapali, of course, uh, being the, uh, uh, the courtesan of Vesali, who was known for being the most expensive hooker in the land. But you can't really use the word hooker for her because she was very, very high class. So she's like a geisha or something like that. And she was very rich and a very rich and wealthy independent woman. And uh, eventually she donated her mango grove to the Buddha. Uh, so uh, the Buddha sometimes stayed there even before she donated it, so it's not clear whether this is before or after that happened. <coughs> anyway, on one occasion, the Blessed One, uh, she, of course, later in her life, she uh, went forth and became a bhikkhuni, and she has some of the most powerful verses in the Terigata, uh, actually her verses also dealing with impermanence, as this sutta is. So there the Buddha addressed those bhikkhus. Bhikkhus! Uh, so this is uh, something that actually we've just been having a little bit of conversation on. I'm not sure whether I should keep interrupting this or just read through the sutta, but anyway, I'll keep interrupting for now. Why not? Uh, I just had a very good cup of coffee, so probably not gonna, the attempt to stop is not going to work. Anyway, because we actually just had some conversation on this uh, on the email, and uh, a number of the uh, monks were having a, a polite um, uh, differences of opinion on the right way to do translation and things like that. And one of the, the reasons for having this discussion was because of this particular word, bhikkhus, and the way that it's used in the Buddhist scriptures. And uh, actually, you know, you find this word bhikkhus is used very, very often throughout the scriptures, like almost all the time the Buddha's saying, you know, such and such monks and O monks and so on. And even you might think that there's a lot in the translations, but actually there's a lot skipped out in the translations, right? So it's actually used almost like every paragraph. And so Bhikkhu Bodhi actually leaves it out a lot of the time. But one of the things that's been noticed about it is that this is, this is the way it's used is very idiomatic in Pali. Uh, and there's a number of contexts that show that the word monks is used when uh, not just monks were present, but also monks, nuns, laymen and laywomen were present. Okay? So it's, even though it sounds like it's just addressed to the monks, but actually it's not. And this is actually a kind of a, a, an accepted idiom in the Pali canon. And there are other cases of this as well. For example, when uh, the Buddha is talking to Sariputta and Moggallana, for example, then he just he addresses it to Sariputta. Okay, so he just addresses it to the most senior, even though he's actually talking to both of them. Uh, or similarly, uh, when he's talking to Venerable Anuruddha and his friends, uh, Kimbila and Nandia, he just refers to Anuruddha in the plural when we're talking to his three friends. So when so this is a kind of idiom that they use. So when we read the word. Uh, monks here, or bhikkhus, 
then that doesn't mean to imply that there were only bhikkhus present, but just that it was the uh, uh, convention uh, that was used at the time. So then, of course, it becomes a question, how should you translate it, right? Do you translate it as bhikkhus, in which case it sounds like there's only monks present? Or Venerable Ananda Jodi said you should translate it as monastics. But then it's also true that sometimes there were lay people present. So do you just translate it as people, right? <laughs> But there may be well non humans there as well, right? <laughs> so, even a simple thing like that, it seems very obvious, right? Actually, is not uh, easy to, to get uh, all the nuance of, of it right. Anyway, the because, but Ante, Venerable Sir, those because replied, and the Blessed One said this Because conditioned phenomena are impermanent. Conditioned phenomena are unstable. Conditioned phenomena are unreliable. It is enough to become disenchanted with all conditioned phenomena. Enough to become dispassionate towards them. Enough to be liberated from them. Okay? So this is a, uh, a very kind of a standard kind of uh, passage on uh, impermanence. And uh, you know, this morning we did a uh, service in this very place for a family who just lost their son. 18-year-old son died unexpectedly in a tragic accident. And so uh, this thing about impermanence, it really, it really hits home. And you know, sometimes when we're meditating or something like that, then we're told like impermanence is like you know, your feelings, you have a feeling and then it goes away, or you have a thought and then it goes away, and that's impermanence, right? And uh, but actually, if you look at the way the Buddha treats impermanence, it's a lot more hard-hitting than that, actually. It's a lot more, it's not just, oh, yeah, well, I had a thought and now it's gone. I mean, that's a kind of a training ground. That's one kind of impermanence. But there are, more, there are other kinds of impermanence which are very, very um, it's challenging to deal with. And in particular, this sutta is dealing with one of the most challenging kinds of impermanence at all. Uh, the term here, conditioned phenomena. Actually, I didn't get a chance to check the Pali before this. I probably should have done. The conditioned phenomena, I guess, is sankharas. Okay, so everything which is conditioned. Remembering that the word sankhara, we use in Buddhism as a philosophical term, actually it means something like energies. So in Buddhism, the whole world is made up of energies, uh, sankharas. Okay. Sankharas are impermanent, unstable, unreliable. It is enough to become disenchanted with all conditioned phenomena. So this word disenchanted is another one which is a little bit of a controversial uh, translation. I think uh, it's probably rendering Pali Nibida. This is, this, this is probably a reversion for Bhikkhu Bodhi to translate Nibida as disenchanted. I think in Majjhima it was disenchanted and then in Sangyutta he was repulsed or something. Revulsion, revulsion, and then here he's gone back to disenchantment. Yeah, is that right? Ah. Okay. Oh, that's not a bad idea. Yeah, go on. And uh, so Venerable will come back. Venerable, for those of you who don't know, Venerable Brahmali was one of Ajahn uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi's main interlocutors in do, doing the translation of the Anguttara Nikaya. So he read through the whole thing in draft and argued with Bhikkhu Bodhi extensively on multiple uh, points of translation and so on. 
And so in this particular case, uh, the, word, the word we're translating here is nibida. And there's one passage, and after Bhikkhu Bodhi published his Majjhima Nikaya, I think it was Ajahn Brahm actually wrote to him and pointed out that the word nibida is used in a context where it gives a simile, and it says, just as if a, a young uh, man or, or woman who was very beautiful and fond of their appearance and you know, liked to look at themselves in the mirror and admire their, their beauty and so on, and somebody was to come up and place around their neck the rotting corpse of a dead dog, okay? they would feel nibida for that, right? So disenchantment is really a little bit weak for that particular context, isn't it? I feel disenchanted with that dead dog that's being hung around my neck, right? So in that context, you have to say something like revulsion, yeah? And so it's actually you'd be and wanted to push it away as quickly as you can. Uh, and so for that reason, in the Sangyutta Nikaya, he translated Nibida as revulsion. And then later on, then trans but then people saying, oh, no, that's too strong. And so now he's translating it as, uh, as uh, disenchantment again. In, in, in the Pali context, it's not always with such a strong meaning as that example I just gave. So it's not a, it's not a black and white case. There was another case I, I translated a, a verse some time ago. I'm just trying to remember what the context was now. But anyway, there was another verse, and you could see in that case, actually, disenchantment was a much better translation. So it's not as if there's a, it's a black and white issue. Okay. <clears throat> So then the Buddha, so this is a basic doctrinal statement. So he's giving this as a teaching on impermanent and then goes on to give the um, uh, series of examples to illustrate that. Now, of course, in the suttas, when we talk about impermanence, it's talked about from multiple different angles. Okay, So sometimes the Buddha talks about how the mind arises and passes away so quickly we can hardly even see it. In other cases, he talks about the, a human life as being uh, impermanent and so on. So like every, it's like a fractal phenomena, right? Impermanence happens at the tiniest levels. Every level that you look at, uh, impermanence is happening. And in this case, he's looking at the big picture of impermanence. Okay, the, the, because Sineru, the king of mountains, is 84,000 yojanas in length. And thank you very much. So that, that is, is that Sankara's? Yeah. 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 Right, so Sinero, King of Mountains, is 84,000 yojanas in length, 84,000 yojanas in width. It is submerged, 84,000 yojanas in the great ocean and rises up 84,000 yojanas above the great ocean. So uh, a yojana, uh, for those of you who don't know, is, is a measure of length in ancient India, equivalent to, uh, it's the, the, the word is related to the word yoke, and it's, a bit, it's the length that a team of, Usually, I think a team of horses would drive without having to change the team over, and it's I think usually calculated about seven kilometers. About right? About twelve sometimes. Twelve or sixteen? Is it? I thought it was seven. Okay, maybe it's okay. Twelve or sixteen? So about twelve or sixteen kilometers. Uh, there's a there's a uh, an equivalent in uh, Finnish. <laughs> which Venerable Brahmali knows about. And the, the le le length of distance they use in Finnish is a, is a reindeer's piss. Okay? So it's like how long you can drive your reindeer before they need to stop and have a leak. Right? <laughs> so that's how they measure distance in Finland. <laughs> True story. I'm not allowed to make things up. <laughs> I'm a monk. 
so. So the Yojanas, so 84,000 Yojanas, so say multiply by 10, 840,000 kilometers, something like that, so say 100,000 kilometers. Or maybe it was seven miles, I was thinking. It was probably yeah, seven miles, yeah, so about 12 kilometers. So, uh, so roughly 100,000 kilometers. So according to this, there's a mountain which is 100,000 kilometers high. That's a very, very high mountain. You might think that the Darling Ranges are very high, that is, if you've never been to anywhere apart from Perth. <laughs> but they're not nearly 100,000 kilometres. They're not even one kilometre. How high is the, the Himalayan mountains? Nine kilometres high. About nine kilometres high. So we're talking ten... My God, that's very high. 10,000 times as high as this. As the, how wide is the Earth? How... Big as the earth. 12,000. So the earth is 12,000 kilometers. So we have the earth, which is like this, and Mount Meru, which is like that, or Sinero, which is like that on the, on the earth, something like that. Needless to say, <laughs> despite years of research and exploration, we haven't yet found Mount Sinero. And uh, you cannot locate it on Google Maps. And uh, one is led to suspect that this was perhaps a mythical mountain. So uh, actually, it's either there's Mount Sinero and Mount Meru, which are referred to very frequently in the Buddhist um, uh, mythology and cosmology. And it's like the kind of the, the center of the, the universe. It's very kind of easy to think, imagine how they would have conceived this. Like if you were down in India and you're sort of looking up and then you, you, know, you can see the Himalayas sort of receding off into the distance and getting higher and higher and higher. And you sort of imagine that there must be a you know, mountain in the center of all that, which is you know, so incredibly high. And so this is a sort of use of hyperbolic language to describe the, the highest mountain in the world. Sometimes Mount um, Meru or Mount Sinero is, is equated with what we know today of as, as Mount Kailash in the Himalayan mountains. And that's a sort of great uh, object of uh, pilgrimage for the uh, Tibetan people especially. But actually is like a mythical mountain. It's actually from the same mythos ultimately because the Indian mythos is from the same roots as the Greek mythos, and so Mount Sinero is, is equivalent to uh, Mount Olympus in the Greek mythos, and so the, uh, the gods and so on were supposed to live on the sides of Mount Sinero and things like that. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, okay, so the argument is that it's not found in the human realm, but found in some heavenly realms. But it doesn't sound like it. <laughs> I mean, normally isn't it, they say that the the heavenly realms are on the slopes of Mount Meru or Mount Sinero. Yeah. So I think that's probably a bit of it's what they call retcon, retcon, retrospective continuity. You know, fix it into place afterwards. So. So anyway, so a huge mountain. So there comes a time, bhikkhus, when rain does not fall for many years, for many hundreds of years, for many thousands of years, for many hundreds of thousands of years. When rain does not fall, seed life and vegetation, medicinal plants, grasses, and giant trees of the forest wither and dry up and no longer exist, so impermanent 
are conditioned phenomena so unstable, so unreliable. This is enough to become disenchanted with all conditioned phenomena, to become dispassionate towards them, enough to become liberated from them. Okay, so here uh, the connection between Mount Sinero and the rain not falling is not obvious in this particular passage. Uh, and in fact, Mount Sinero uh, is sort of, uh, it's introduced here, but it makes a reappearance later on towards the end of the story. Uh, so, a drought. I probably, hopefully, don't need to tell you or remind you that we're, we've experienced droughts, very bad droughts, in the, the recent years, and the drought in California. Now the worst drought for 1,200 years. Yeah, they just had a huge storm there, so there's kind of between going between extremes. But they had the worst drought in 1,200 years. Yeah, and uh, of course Australia suffered multiple times over the last few years with droughts. Uh, even recently, I was just just came back from Malaysia, and Malaysia is the last place you imagine having a drought. And the last place in Malaysia that you imagine having a drought is a place called Taiping. And uh, I was talking about it with my, my mum just now, and she lived in Malaysia for a year, and she said, you know, this is, you drive through, when you're driving along the road from, from Penang to Ipoh or KL, and, uh, you know, it's like, oh, it's raining, so it must be Taiping. And the, the, the clouds will come off the ocean, and they hit the mountains, and they just dump it there. It was unbelievable. When we drove down from Penang to Taiping just a couple of weeks ago, you're just driving, it's just a normal day, right? And you drive along the road, and then you look, and there's this, there's this, purple inky black layer of clouds and lightning and thunder and the unbelievable torrential rain coming down on Taiping and it's just like that every day and they had a drought right Taiping had a drought and water restrictions can you imagine they had water restrictions last year KL also had very very bad water restrictions so this was um, you know, my mum said that driving around Malaysia at the time was like driving around Perth in midsummer Malaysia is not supposed to look like Perth in midsummer. Yeah. Perth is supposed to look like that. Yeah. Malaysia isn't. Yeah. So this is the Buddha's talking about the uh, ecosystem, the environment being impermanent. So okay, there are you know in a sense there are mythological elements in this sutta, right? And later on we'll talk about the, all the suns and the Mount Sinero and so on. So so some of the context is this kind of bit of a, a cosmological myth. But the, the, the reality in terms of the environment and, and so on is very much real. That's very much what's happening. And uh, as our climate change accelerates and as our, our beloved leaders in Lima continue to, to argue with each other about who gets to uh, uh, destroy the most of the environment without, with, while paying the least, then uh, uh, one wonders whether this situation of having droughts lasting for tens or hundreds or thousands of years is not something that we're going to be facing in the very near future. There comes a time when after a long time, a second sun appears. With the appearance of the second sun, the small rivers and lakes dry up and evaporate and no longer exist. So impermanent are conditioned Phenomena so unstable, so unreliable. This is enough to become disenchanted with all conditioned phenomena, to become dispassionate towards them, enough to become liberated from them. So, so this idea of a second sun appearing in the sky. Well, 
astrologically, I don't think it's likely that you're actually going to get a second sun appearing. I mean, you might, I don't know how you would, but uh, it seems to suggest it's a kind of um, uh, geocentric view of the universe, that the sun's revolving around the earth, it seems to suggest to me, but maybe not definitively. But the idea is that you, that, that, uh, uh, to me, I take it not necessarily as being literal appearance of suns, but that as the sun's becoming more fierce or the weather's becoming more fierce or something like that. Um, anyway, but that's, that's open to interpretation, how you want to read that with the second sun. Yeah, go on. Right. So there actually are two suns, you know, kind of, kind of like planets revolving around our sun at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I wonder whether they actually they are kind of trinary. Uh, I'm not sure about that, but I think they might be trinary as well. But Probably. Even that this idea should actually exist is, is quite uh, Right. Quite and he, he, he'd never even seen Star Wars. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> Probably not, yeah. <laughs> Probably not. Well, if he's omniscient, maybe he had seen it. Yeah. Anyway. So yes, this idea, you know, that that that, but it, you know, it's it's it, the, 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 how how radical and how powerful the idea of impermanence is, right? And and you know, you're especially to me, it's, in, it's like you're in a, in that Indian environment where where everything's always about eternity, right? And all the kind of religious myths and so on about how everything's the same and everything repeats and so on and so forth. And yet he's pointing out actually that these things will just change, even those things we take to be the most fundamental and most reliable, right? I mean, there's nothing more reliable than that, yeah? The sun comes up in the morning, there it is, yeah? But even that can change. Any, any, please, please feel free to interrupt or ask questions or whatever while we're going on. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, that's that's what it talks about a bit later on in the sutta. Yeah. But but yes, you know, suns change, right? They turn into red dwarfs and supernovas and all kinds of things. Yeah. John. Ah, oh, okay. Great minds. <laughs> Very good. Okay. Then, after a long time, how long is a long time? Well, who knows? A third sun appears with the appearance of... Oh, sorry, I should mention also with the, 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 the rivers, small rivers and lakes drying up and evaporate and no longer exist. Perhaps not, not, not as dramatic in the Australian context as it is in the Indian context, I don't know. But anyway, we kind of get used to the idea of having lakes and rivers and things that don't exist. Okay, uh, after the... After a long time, the third sun appears, and then the great rivers, the Ganges, Yamuna, Atiravati, Sarabhu, and Mahi, and drive up and evaporate and no longer exist. So permanent are conditioned phenomena. This is enough to be liberated from them. There comes a time when, after a long time, a fourth sun appears. With the appearance of the fourth sun, the great lakes from which those great rivers originate, the Anotata, Sihapapata, Ratakara, Kannamunda, Kunala, 
chaddanta and mandakini dry up and evaporate and no longer exist. So these uh, lakes are, as far as I'm aware, all mythical lakes. The Anotata is one which is known in uh, Buddhist sort of mythological literature. There's a number of sort of fabulous discourses which are set on the Anotata lake. Sihapapata, uh, where it's the lion's cliff. I'm not sure where that's supposed to be. Ratakara is a curious name for a um, lake. It means the chariot maker. Why they call a great lake the chariot maker, I'm not quite sure. Karnamunda, sh um, shaven eared. Is that right? Karnamunda? Yeah, shaven eared. The shave eared lake. Maybe it looks like an ear. Maybe, I don't know. Kunala. Anyway, so these are, these are uh, the idea is that in the Himalayan mountains there are great mythical lakes and these are the sources of the, uh, uh, of the great rivers. So again, even though uh, there's a kind of mythological or cosmological context here, then of course in uh, real life uh, this is in fact what's happening to these rivers and the great rivers that flow from the Himalayan regions, the Ganges and Yamuna, but also the uh, uh, the uh, what is it? The uh, what is the Brahma? What's the one on the east? Brahma something? Brahmaputra? Yeah, exactly. Thank you. Mekong River, and in China, I think the Yellow River is it the Yellow River in China? Yeah, and so these rivers are all uh, greatly threatened by uh, development uh, in Tibet and the damming and so on, and uh, of course these these rivers are the rivers on which. Uh, hundreds of millions of people depend right, for their water and for their livelihood and for the sustenance of their soil and their lands and all kinds of things. And, uh, and these, you know, these, you, if you look back in history and you look at uh, great civilizations like the Indus Valley civilization in India and other civilizations, uh, they, become they become established dependent on the waters from some of these great rivers. Uh, and then climate change happens, the rivers shift because of... Uh, earthquakes or tectonic shifts or whatever it might be, and then uh, the civilizations collapse. Yeah, that's the end of them. And we're looking in our life at, at these uh, great changes which are happening to, uh, to these rivers. I lived for uh, a number of years, actually three range retreats I spent in Thailand uh, on the Mekong River and uh, staying in Kutis on cliffs, which was actually overlooking the Mekong River there. And the Mekong River is a very extraordinary river because out of probably out of all of these, it's the wildest and most untamed river. It's almost completely unnavigable for much of its length. And uh, when you kind of look down on it, it's very kind of deep and narrow and it's fast moving, very incredibly dangerous. And uh, uh, so... Uh, and there were, during the time that I was there, there were multiple... This was, this was the most... Uh, remote, one of the most remote places in Thailand, actually, right on the easternmost tip of Thailand. And uh, during the time I was there, there were multiple uh, proposals for dams and uh, hydroelectric schemes and all of these kinds of things to be built in that very obscure place, which was, in fact, a national park. And none of those plans went ahead, as far as I know, uh, but it does give you an idea of how much these rivers are under threat. And it's not just in one place or another, and it's not just one project or another, but it's everywhere, all places, all rivers, uh, all countries, all the time that these rivers are under threat. And that makes a, a huge difference in terms of uh, 
you know, these, these feed the most densely populated parts of the world. So... Ah, third son, fourth son. Okay, then there comes a time when after a long time, a fifth son appears. With the appearance of the fifth son, the waters in the uh, great ocean sink by a hundred yojanas, 200 yojanas, 300 yojanas, 700 yojanas. The water left in the great ocean stands at the height of seven palm trees, six palm trees, five palm trees, four palm trees, three, two, or even one palm tree, seven fathoms, uh, fathom probably being a hatapasa, would that be right? Like a half arm's length? Four fathoms, three, two, one, half a fathom, up to the waist, up to the knees, up to the ankles. Just as in the autumn, when thick drops of rain are pouring down, the waters stand in the hoof prints of cattle here and there, so that the waters left in the great ocean will stand there, stand here and there in pools the size of the hoof prints of cattle. With the appearance of the fifth sun, the water left in the great ocean is not enough even to reach the joints of one's fingers. So impermanent are conditioned phenomena. This is enough to be liberated from them. So this is the uh, disappearance of the oceans. Now, in, in, you know, if you look in the, in the suttas and in the Indian idioms, the things that, w that are being used here, like the great the, 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 the Ganges River and the, the, the Mount Sineru and the great oceans, and these are always used as similes for something which is immeasurable. Right? So it'd be as, you know, this is as mighty as a great mountain or as, as vast as a great river or as immeasurable as a great ocean. And these, these are what you use to convey a sense of something which is so incredibly vast and so huge. Right? But, uh, and here the Buddha is saying even these things, the, the biggest, most vast, most abundant things that we know of, even these things will disappear. And, uh, of course, just as with all the other things, we, we are seeing exactly that today, even though we, we, you know, we can drive from here a few minutes to the west and we can look out over the great ocean. And you look out over that and, and it, looks, it looks just the same. You know, it looks just the same as it did to me when I was growing up in Perth. You know, nothing's changed. And it seems like we can kind of dump all of our crap in the ocean and we can throw our, our sewage in there and we can put our industrial waste in there and we can dump our plastic in there. Recent estimates, they now think that there are a trillion pieces of plastic rubbish floating around in the oceans. That's a trillion, yeah? A trillion is a big, big number, <laughs> yeah? A trillion pieces of plastic floating around in the oceans, all of them dangerous, all of them killing life. And as well as those trillion pieces of plastic, there's also the, the heating up of the oceans we're having now. Yeah? What's the figure? I think it's, is it 20,000? Equivalent to 20,000 Hiroshima bombs every second? That's the amount of heat that's going into the oceans? I think that's the figure. Someone correct me if I'm wrong there. 20,000 Hiroshima bombs every second. Okay? That's the amount of heat energy that the oceans are being heated up by. And in addition to that, then the acidification of the oceans and also the overfishing, so that uh, everywhere around the world all of the big fish have been taken out and commercial fisheries are continually being depleted. And the amount of the stock of fish that are left is very, very small. And so these things all have kind of multiple um, 
uh, impacts and multiple, uh, they, they feed back on each other and amplify each other. So in fact, the oceans largely these days are being taken over by jellyfish. Right? This is one thing that nobody was really predicting, but this is, this is what we're looking forward to, is the, the, the jellyfish apocalypse. <laughs> the, what do you call it, the jellyfocalypse? The, uh, I don't know, there's got to be some name for it. Uh, And of course, even though here it's talking about the diminishing of the oceans and the, the ending of them, but of course, in the short term anyway, we're looking at the rising of the oceans. Uh, and uh, by the oceans are rising both because of the um, uh, melting of the ice, uh, especially in Greenland and Antarctica, but also because of the uh, expansion of the water due to the fact that it's heating up. And so, of course, as water heats up, it expands. And so the oceans are rising. Conservatively, they say that by the end of the century, the oceans will be risen by one metre. And at one metre ocean rise, for example, 17% uh, of Bangladesh will be underwater. Okay? That's, that's the densely populated 17%, by the way. Yeah. So that's, what, 100 million people or something? They've got to go somewhere. Yeah, of course, the Mekong Valley will also be flooded, so they've got to go somewhere. Christmas Island, perhaps. <laughs> so these are the challenges that we're going to be facing in coming generations. Uh, but that one metre sea level rise is extremely conservative, and more realistic predictions probably two metre sea level rise, maybe more. Uh, depending on the rate of collapse of the Greenland ice sheet, we could be looking at even... Uh, up to 10, 15 metres sea level rise uh, in the longer term, although that will take some time to come. So this ocean that we take for granted, right, which is, seems so permanent and so stable and so vast, and yet it too is changing. And we can't just predict that things will be the same in the future as they were in the past. And just as this particular sutta is talking about a kind of a long-term shift and change in the climate towards a climate which is much less hospitable for human life. Right? And this is, this is what we're seeing in our own time, a long-term drastic shift in our climate towards something which is much less hospitable to human life, much less fun. When there are five suns in the sky, you won't be able to go sunbathing down at... Scarborough Beach for very long, <laughs> even with a maximum protection sunscreen. Okay, then it goes on to the sixth sun. There comes a time when, after a long time, a sixth sun appears. With the appearance of the sixth sun, this great earth and Sinero, the king of mountains, smoke, fume, and smolder. Just as a potter's fire, when kindled, first smokes, fumes, and smoulders, so with the appearance of the sixth sun, this great earth and Sinero, the king of mountains, smoke, fume, and smolder. So impermanent are conditioned phenomena. And there comes a time when, after a long time, a seventh sun appears. With the appearance of the seventh sun, this great earth and Sinero, the king of mountains, burst into flames, blaze up brightly, and become one mass of flame. As the great earth and Sinero are blazing and burning, the flame cast up by the wind rises even to the Brahma world. 
as Sinero is blazing and burning as it is undergoing destruction and being overcome by a great mass of heat, mountain peaks of a hundred yojanas disintegrate, of two hundred or three hundred or four hundred or five hundred yojanas disintegrate. When this great earth and Sinero, the king of mountains, are blazing and burning, neither ashes nor soot are seen, just as when ghee or oil are blazing and burning, neither ashes nor soot are seen, so it is when this great earth and Sinero, the king of mountains, are blazing and burning. So impermanent are conditioned phenomena, so unstable, so unreliable, it's enough to become disenchanted, it's enough to become dispassionate, to become freed from these uh, conditioned phenomena. So that's pretty dramatic, isn't it? <laughs> Everything we hold dear, all of the things we think are so wonderful, nature, human accomplishments, cities, technology, all the things we're so proud of, all our lives, everything we think is going to last, all going to burn up. It's not even going to become ashes. Right? No soot or ashes is left behind. And this does, in fact, sound very similar to what happens in a, a solar system when the, uh, the sun turns into a uh, red giant or a supernova or something like that, depending how the future, how it evolves. And everything goes. Are you feeling depressed yet? <laughs> You should be. It's depressing. It's all right. Because it's naturally. We cannot stop that, yeah. Okay, yeah, that's true, right? But when I hear people saying that, then I think either that person is either very wise or they're in denial. Okay, so you have to think for yourself which one. Well, then you see what happens. For example, if you, you can say like that, okay, that sounds good. Then what happens if the person who you love the most, what happens if they die? Oh. <laughs> oh, I know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> something like that, yeah, and it, and it, and it really does make a difference, right? It's not it's not something which is uh, it's not just a theory or something like that. But if you do contemplate it regularly and do keep this teaching on impermanence in mind, it really makes a difference when it ca when it counts, yeah. But the the, the only thing I'm I, you know I, I just think that you know I think it's important for people to you know just to acknowledge the fact that well. You know, you, it's, it's still okay to feel that grief. It's still okay if you hear things like this to be disturbed or depressed. It's okay to be worried about the future, right? But you reflect on it and when you understand it in terms of impermanence and then you can learn to accept the future uh, and you, you worry about it gradually. You know, you come to accept that and that will come to diminish and it will come to be okay, okay? So, so it, to, thinking about it in terms of impermanence is giving us a context and a framework that uh, lets us, you know, let, lets us bring these things to mind, lets us think about them, 
because often often they're just too hard to think about, aren't they? They just we don't like to think about things that are too challenging and too disturbing. Yeah? And you know, we always everything has to be sort of framed in the kind of positive way and these kinds of things. I remember seeing many years ago there was a a, a, a sort of like a satire of these things, and these people did like this this kind of uh, song that was supposed to be about let's all focus on the positive with regard to cigarette smoking. And they said, you know, one of the things was like somebody dies every seven seconds from smoking cigarettes. So, you know, don't be so negative. Let's focus on the six seconds in between. All right? <laughs> it's the power of positive thinking. Yeah? Or the power of denial, uh, depending on which way you look at it. Yeah? So it's okay, you know, to, to bring these things to mind and to feel, right? And to feel that, ah, oh, that's, that's so stressful, that's so worrying, Okay. But also, you know, you just reflect, oh, that feeling, too, is impermanent, right? Your response to it is impermanent. You might go home tonight and be very worried about it and thinking, what are we going to do? How are we going to change things? And then you wake up to morning, tomorrow morning, maybe you're thinking, oh, it's okay. And you come to a sense of acceptance. So, you know, there's a process to be gone through there, right? So we have to go through that process. So don't be too, too quick to dismiss it, sometimes if you're too quick to dismiss it and say, oh, yes, it's impermanent, oh, yes, it doesn't matter, oh, yes, it's, you know. But actually, you're not really facing up to it. Right, yeah, so sometimes you just get kind of bored with it. It just gets in the, it's in the background and you, yeah. Yeah, whatever, yeah. Well, you always have to find new ways to sort of make it fresh. This is the thing with, with Dhamma teachings, I think any kind of teaching, that, that, that they become... They become uh, uh, worn out, right, after you say they're very fresh when you first hear them. And then they get they get worn out, you know. Like if you you know, if you look at say the Buddha's first sermon, Dhamma Chakapavatana Sutta, when they heard that, you know, the group of five monks, you know, they, you know, and Anukandanya becomes a stream enterer, and it was just like had this incredibly powerful impact, right? But these days we hear that, and it's like, oh, it's the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, and it's just you know, it's just another kind of boring teaching on the Four Noble. We know well about that, and you know, what's the big deal? And and so you heard it so many times that that it just becomes it's nothing special. But at that time, it was incredibly radical. It was incredibly powerful teaching, and so yes, always we always need to 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 make them real again. Yeah. And so I guess one of the most important ways of doing that is through meditation where you, you, know, you, you bring these teachings of impermanence in and you investigate them uh, in your own mind and your own life and with those things, especially those things that are bringing you suffering. So on, on, uh, on, on, on Friday, my mum bought a new car and she was very proud. She got a shiny new Mercedes and so she said, oh, she, she took it for the first drive through and she was driving through Kings Park and she was so happy and stuff and then she noticed that the gum trees were dropping the, the, the gum nuts down and she was like, oh, I've got to go home now. I can't risk getting my, <laughs> getting my car dented. And I said, you know, it's all impermanent, right? <laughs> Sorry, Anna. Yeah. Uh huh. 
Uh-huh. Yep, good question. So what happens when the earth burns up? Everywhere, all the sentient beings, not just the human beings, but also all of the uh, other beings, they have to get reborn somewhere. And obviously it's not going to be very hospitable to get reborn on this world. So where do they go? Uh, in, in the suttas, the suttas do give an answer to that question, but it's not an entirely satisfactory answer. They, they, the suttas say that for the most part, beings get reborn in the Abhasara Brahma realm. Okay, so it's a very high, kind of high realm, normally produced by the second jhana. And it says, Yebhu Yena, that beings for the most part. And uh, so I'm not quite sure what the implications are. If Does it mean that all beings or most beings have actually practiced second jhana at some point in the past that will get them reborn in there? Seems a bit unlikely, but then maybe a long time in sangsara, so maybe we all have done second jhana sometime in the past. On the other hand, does it mean that there's like a special exemption that you can sort of get a pass through the gate without doing second jhana at that time? In which case all the people who are in there having done all this diligent meditation for many years are like, oh, come on, we did all this work to get here, and then these guys are just... <laughs> so, not sure, but, but anyway, the, the general idea is that, yes, in, you get reborn somewhere else, uh, uh, maybe, maybe on other planets or something like that, but then you also have like a big crunch, don't you, when all of the planets and so on disappear. So at the end of the whole universe, then uh, it's going to be an even tighter squeeze. Yeah. Right. So it it doesn't use the word rebirth, it uses the word evolving into the Abhasa realm. Which makes me wonder whether actually somebody else is running the same movement. What's actually going on there? Oh, I didn't notice that. Okay, somewhat dunty. Okay, Ajahn Brahmali was saying that in, in that particular context where it talks about being just going to the, the Abhasa or Brahma realm, it uses a different word than the normal word to use to be reborn, which would be something like uh, Upapajati or something like that. But here they use the word Sangvatanti, which literally means to evolve. Uh, and it's actually used of the universe as a whole, like the evolution and devolution of the world. Uh, they and... Uh, there's also the Sangvatanika Vijnana, is a consciousness which evolves from, from one life to the next. So, yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. Anyway, it's not an entirely satisfactory answer, but I think the basic principle should be that you're going to get reborn somewhere else. Um, and, uh, yeah, until conditions are right. Yeah, Wayne. Right. Yeah, well, that's that beings to be reborn is what they call the antarabhava, yeah, and that's uh, it's like an in-between state, and that's, yes, mentioned in the um, Metta Sutta and quite a few times in the Nidana Sangyutta as well. And, uh, yeah, so that seems like it's a state of potential rather than a state of actualized rebirth. In that kind of state, you, you still have five khandas, right? So you still have five aggregates, uh, it's not it's not an immaterial state, but you don't have like a physical body as such, but you still have some kind of there's some physical aspect to what's happening, maybe like an energy or something. Uh, so that may be another possibility. Yes, perhaps you're in you know you're in some kind of almost like suspended animation, or you're stuck in transit for the period of time. Right? This is what it is. It's like you're just stuck in the airport lounge and can't move on. 
uh, until finally they say you can go. Yeah. It's kind of a terrifying thought. Sorry. No, it says it says that the great the a great earth disappears. There's not even not even ash left behind. It's all gone. Everyone's nibbana. Yeah, well, it's it, well. Interestingly enough, it does use a similar description. It uses a similar description of somebody who attains parinibbana. Right. So there's a few cases in the suttas where where monks uh, are about to die and they realize that they're about to die. And the coolest way to die, if you're a monk, okay? So the most awesome of all ways to die is you get all of the sangha together and then you sit in the middle of the sangha, you fly into the air and then you burst into flame and burn up, right? So that there's nothing left behind. Now that is a truly awesome way to go, yeah. And so when it gives that kind of thing that uh, it says that there wasn't even any soot or ashes left behind, the same kind of idea that there's like completely no residue. Yeah, I've never heard of anyone actually doing that, but there was a case in um, Bodh Gaya a few years ago when I was there where a, a, a nun uh, actually spontaneously combusted while sitting in meditation uh, in Bodh Gaya. Uh, I arrived about a week or two after this had happened, and uh, everyone it was already kind of buzz. Everyone was talking about it, and she was an elderly Bhutanese nun who'd come, and she was just sitting meditation around the Bodhi tree, and then just burst into flame, right, and and just combusted right there. And uh, everyone, the police were investigating and so on. There was no petrol there. There was no matches. There was nothing flammable. And she just she just sat there perfectly peacefully, and then just burnt up. <laughs> okay, don't get any ideas, sisters. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Oh, we had we had a question earlier. Where was the question earlier? Oh, sorry. Yes, I'll come back to you in a minute. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's one, like I said, there's there's one or two cases where it says that. Whether it's true or not, I can't say. I haven't. I've never heard any example, any living examples of people actually doing that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Sentence. So that's even that's even that's even more cool. But uh, ha having said all of that, remember that the, when the Buddha himself died, then they had an ordinary funeral pyre with like wood and things like that to burn his body. So, just saying. All right. Um, sorry, Gabriel. Okay. Vija, okay. So, so who who burns up the the monks? Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think it's actually originating with these stories is where you get the practice of self-immolation that we had. We knew of that originally with the Vietnamese monks during the Vietnamese War, 
and then more recently with the Tibetan monks who are doing self-immolation. And I think that's, that's one of the sources of that idea. Of course, in, the, in those stories, uh, it's actually when you reach the end of your life, right? You know that your time has come, you're, it's, it's, you're finished, and then you sort of, through your spiritual power, your psychic power, you just sort of burn your body up, right? So that's very different from sort of burning yourself as a protest or a political act. Yeah. Okay. Any more questions? Nope. All right. Okay, because who except those who have seen the truth would think or believe that this great earth and Sinera, the king of mountains, will burn up, be destroyed, and will no longer exist? That's what the Buddha's pointing to. What an astonishing thing this is to even talk about it. And he goes on to tell another story. In the past, and this is an idiom... Sorry? is actually quite interesting of that. Tatra Bikawe Ko Manta, right? Ko Manta, who would think? Ko Sadhata, who would have faith, who would believe? Ayancha Patavisinero Chapabaraja Daihisati Vinasisati Nabhavisanti Di. So this great mountain Meru will, will uh, burn up and won't exist. Anyatra Dirtapadehi. Unless somebody who so dittapada would normally refer to a stream enterer. Yeah, so I'm wondering whether that is implied in that case. Dittapato, yeah, yeah, it's an unusual word. Yeah, dittapadehi, someone who's seen the state, something like that. Yeah, unusual phrase. Anyway, it goes on to say bhutapubang, which is a kind of an idiom. In in the suttas, you'll find. Uh, that there are a number of different idioms for introducing stories, okay, and introducing uh, narratives. Uh, the, the most well-known one is the, 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 the phrase which occurs in theory, in any, any case, at the beginning of all the suttas, and that's eva me sutang, thus have I heard. Uh, often uh, eva me sutang is actually omitted from the Pali text, which is a question of abbreviation, and actually in Chinese and other texts it's always included. Uh, but... Uh, in this case, in this particular sutta, eva me sutang is omitted, but it's always f- should be included by default. It's always meant to be included, even if it's not stated. Uh, and eva me sutang is traditionally held to be the words of Venerable Ananda at the first council when he he was reciting it, and he was supposed to have heard it from the Buddha himself, and is relating something that he heard from the Buddha. Uh, however, that's not actually what it means, and unfortunately, it's very clear from the Pali text that, that it does not mean that at all. Actually, eva me sutang is specifically used as an idiom to mean this is something that I'm passing down through the oral tradition. This is something where I was not actually present at these events, but I heard that it was the case. Okay, it's specifically used to indicate that. Uh, and there's an example, for uh, a case of that where, uh, for example, Venerable Anuruddha is talking, is asked by somebody about uh, various orders of devas or something like that, and he, he describes them, and the person says to him, uh, it seems that Venerable Anuruddha doesn't say, thus have I heard. 
so it seems you must have seen these devas for yourself. Okay? So clearly that they knew that if you say, thus have I heard, it means you were not actually there. It's something you're passing down as a tradition. So the words eva me sutang aren't the words of Ananda because he was in fact present to him at least many of the Buddha's discourses. So this is just the, the acknowledgement uh, within the tradition that this is something that's being passed down through the oral tradition. There's another idiom that's used to uh, express the fact that you were actually there and that's sammukha me bhagavato sutang sammukha patigahitang which means uh, in, in the presence of the Blessed One I heard this, in the presence of the Blessed One I learnt this or I remembered this. And this is used by Venerable Ananda mostly, maybe by others, um, to, to introduce a teaching where he was actually physically present and heard something and is relating what he heard directly from the Buddha. So it's this idiom, in the Blessed One's presence I heard this and in the Blessed One's presence I learnt this. Uh, and in this sutta we have another little formula which is used to introduce passages and this is bhutapubhang. It's translated here as in the past. And... Uh, perhaps justifiable to translate this as once upon a time, okay? Because this particular idiom is always used to introduce kind of vaguely legendary stories of the past. So it's where we're no longer dealing with kind of literal historical events in the time of the Buddha, but we're dealing with some kind of more or less imaginary events of the past. And, for example, all of the Jataka stories are introduced with this phrase, Bhutabhubhang, uh, once upon a time. So in the past, because there was a teacher named Sunetta, okay, Sunetta, uh, which means uh, pretty eyes, the founder of a spiritual sect who had without lust for sensual pleasures. Okay, so that probably implies that he had uh, jhanas. The teacher Sunetta had many hundreds of disciples to whom he taught a, a dhamma for the companionship with the Brahma world. Companionship with the Brahma world? You're going up and being how, I'm, I'm mates with the with the world. Companionship, Brahma Sahavita, Brahma, Brahma Loka Sahavita. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, I'll move on. I won't complain. Yes, I will. Okay, moving on. When he was teaching, those who understood his teaching completely were with the breaking up of the body after death reborn in a good destination in the Brahma realm. But of those who did not understand his teaching completely, some were born in companionship with the devas who control what is, what is created by others, some in companionship with the devas who delight in creation, and Tusita and Yama and Tavatinsa and the four great kings and so on. So these are all the different levels, the heavenly realms, according to the Buddhist cosmology. Uh, some were reborn uh, with the uh, with the Katiyas or the Brahmins uh, or with the affluent householders. So these are the uh, again the different fortunate levels of uh, uh, human life. So uh, essentially, the point that's being made here is of that person's following that they all got born in some good destination, right? As far as high as the Brahma realm, or at least into a good human life, which is is kind of interesting because if you think in the Buddha's case, not all of his followers got reborn in a good human life. Some of his followers went to hell. So perhaps Sunetta was a better teacher than the Buddha, I don't know. Anyway, moving on. I'll try not to be too heretical from here on out. Then, because it occurred to the teacher Sunetta, it isn't fitting that I should have exactly the same future destination as my disciples. Let me develop loving-kindness further. Then for seven years the teacher Sunetta developed the mind of loving-kindness. As a consequence, for seven eons of world dissolution and evolution, he did not come back to this world. 
when the world was dissolving, he moved on to the realm of streaming radiance. And when the world was evolving, he was reborn in an empty mansion of Brahma. So here we see these words um, dissolving and evolving, uh, which we mentioned uh, previously, uh, Sangwata and Vivata. There, in that empty mansion of Brahma, he was Brahma, the great Brahma, the vanquisher, the unvanquished, the universal seer, the wielder of mastery. He was, so Brahma, of course, being the great god of the uh, Hindu or Brahmanical tradition uh, and more or less being equivalent to the creator god in the monotheistic religions, except, of course, for being conditioned and foolish and so on. He was uh, Saka, king of the gods, 36 times. Many hundreds of times he was a wheel-turning monarch, a righteous king who ruled by the Dhamma, a conqueror whose rule extended to the four boundaries, one who had attained stability in the country, who possessed the seven gems. So seven gems are not literal gems, but they're seven, uh, 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 what do you call them, seven attributes that a wheel-turning monarch has, uh, such as a, uh, the perfect queen, a perfect treasurer, a perfect... Um, uh, various kinds of things that they have anyway so uh, he has over a thousand sons who were heroes vigorous able to crush the armies of their enemies he reigned after he had conquered this earth as far as its ocean boundaries not by force and weapons but by the dhamma so this is this idea uh, in the buddhist text of a wheel turning monarch uh, and the details of the mythology of the wheel-turning monarch indicate, it seems to me, that this ideal was derived ultimately from the Brahmanical text, especially in the um, Brihadaranika Upanishad, which develops the idea of the king who gains his sovereignty by means of the horse sacrifice. Uh, and the way that these things are described is uh, quite similar, except, in, of course, in the Buddhist case, you don't have uh, a sacrifice of humans and animals and you don't have violence. So this is a kind of ideal of a universal ruler. The closest in history to reaching that ideal, of course, was King Ashoka. So because, so in any case, the, the main purpose of this paragraph is to show that through the power of developing that meditation and developing the, the, the jhana based on loving kindness, uh, that he for a very, very long time was born into these magnificent, very positive uh, rebirths. Because though he had such a long lifespan and continued on for such a long time, the teacher Sunetta was still not freed from birth, from old age and death, from sorrow, lamentation, pain, dejection and anguish. He was not freed from suffering, I say. For what reason? Because he did not understand and penetrate four things. What four? Noble virtuous behavior, that's Aryasila. Noble concentration, noble samadhi, Arya samadhi. Uh, noble wisdom, Arya Panya, and noble liberation, Arya Vimuti. And then the Buddha goes on, referring to himself, noble virtuous behavior has been understood and penetrated, noble concentration, noble samadhi has been understood and penetrated, noble wisdom has been understood and penetrated, noble liberation has been understood and penetrated, craving for existence has been cut off, Bhavatanha, the conduit to existence, has been destroyed. The Bhavaneti, now there is no more renewed existence. Okay, can I just ask? I'd like to do a, a quick survey here. What do you understand by the word existence in that last passage? What does existence mean? I especially want to hear from people who, who don't know all that much about the suttas. Right? Not so much ex sutta experts who maybe read the footnotes and stuff like that. 
people, what, when you just read that passage, what do you think that existence means? Or when you first read it, something like that, what do you think it means? Or does it not mean anything at all? Being reborn? Being reborn in this plane? Craving for life? Okay. Okay, any other thoughts on that? No more five skandhas? Okay. Okay, any other thoughts on that? No more rebirth at all? Okay. Anyone else? No? Does it mean anything? Does anybody read that and then go, I don't know what that means? How can you not be wanting to exist? When you have this, this passage, craving for existence has been cut off. Conduit to existence has been destroyed. Now there is no more renewed existence. What do you understand by that sentence? When you read that, what do you, what do you think it means? Or does, does existence mean anything to you? Or does it, how do you understand that passage? What's it trying to say? <laughs> that's all right, that's all right. No bonding. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's all right, that's all right. Yeah. Kind of, kind of, but that's, that's fine. I was, just, I, was just, I was just interested to hear people's responses, so that's fine, yeah. Any other, any other suggestions? Any other thoughts? What do you make of it? It's just the reason I'm asking is because I'm not, I'm not sure whether tra using the word existence as a translation here is a good way to translate it. And so I'm just wondering, because sometimes when you get used to these things for a very long time, you kind of forget what it actually means to someone in a different context. Like if you're reading it fresh, then it has a different meaning than if you're used to, you're conditioned to understand it from a Buddhist point of view. So I'm, I was just wondering if anybody had any other reactions or responses to the term. All right. Okay. Yeah. You can't. Sorry. You, you can't understand that. Yeah. Yeah. So, what do you understand by that? Bit confused. Yeah. I'm not surprised. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the, okay. So the the phrase here is is it's a very it's a, it's a very idiomatic phrase, and uh, the phrase is bhavaneti samuhata, right? So bhavaneti samuhata means destroyed or made an ending or or whatever. But bhavaneti bhava is we translate as existence, right? But it actually means like a, a state of rebirth, right? So you have like the manusa bhava is like the human realm, or something like that. So it's actually being it's almost like a life or something. So you will be born in that life. So the neti. Neti is, literally means a cord, right, or a lead, or a cord, or a tie, or something like that. So, in one sense, it's fairly it kind of obviously means that your your attachment to that existence, right? So you're 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 being tied onto that existence. But it seems to have another and reason. I think why Venerable Bodhi has translated as conduit is it seems to have a slightly more uh, sort of an implication, almost like it's kind of something that leads you to that existence, or almost like pulls you to that existence. 
And it's, it's kind of, it's an interesting idiom because there's been a number of kind of reports of people who have kind of visions of maybe meditation or something like that, or, or of, you know, when they're coming to die and they have like a vision of where they're going to reborn or something like that. And they actually sort of see, they almost like see literally a cord of light that connects them from, from this life to a next. And this is something that actually people do report. And so it's quite an interesting idiom in that respect, right? So it's that, it's that, that tie of life that sort of reaches out in, in one sense from yourself to where you're going to get reborn. Yeah, you think of it as it's that conduit. You, you sort of reach out with your mind and you, you attach a tie onto where you're going to get reborn and that's what you're going to pull yourself along to go there. Yeah, so this is this is somehow the idiom. I mean, in a, in a, in a, I mean, actually, it just kind of means like craving or something like that, right? So the craving to be reborn. But it seems to me there's something more to the metaphor than just than just craving. Like there's a reason why that particular metaphor is used. It's almost like you're you're like reaching out and tying yourself up to the new existence and then pulling yourself along to it. Yeah. I'm not sure about preordained, but 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 the. From the karmic perspective, yeah, that you, you know, I mean, it can still change, right? So, uh, uh, but, but yeah, it's it's like you 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 establish that connection first before before you actually get reborn. Yeah. Okay. Right. 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 Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so it's like a, um, almost like a pipe, or an electric. You almost like you, you're you're plugging in the electrical cord that you can then send your consciousness down. <laughs> Something like that. Not to take it too literally. Yeah. So you can control the rats, wow. <laughs> uh Okay, anyway, we've reached more or less the end of the class and more or less the end of the sutta, so that's just the, the conclusions. I'll just let me conclude, Alan, we'll come back to you in just one sec. So this is what the Blessed One said. Having said this, the fortunate one, the teacher, further said this, so the fortunate one and the teacher are just other epithets for the Buddha here. Uh, virtuous behavior, so sila, uh, concentration is samadhi, wisdom is panya, and unsurpassed liberation. These things, the illustrious Gotama, okay, the family name of the Buddha, understood by himself. Having directly known these things, the Buddha taught the Dhamma to the bhikkhus, the teacher, the end maker of suffering. The end maker of suffering. I, I prefer Terminator for that, but no, that's just because I, I was a science fiction fan, so I like the Terminator. For, anyway, the one with vision has attained Nibbana. Okay, so. Um,
interestingly enough that the verses are very clearly spoken in a third person there. So this is obviously uh, not the Buddha's voice there, but somebody talking about the Buddha. Yeah. So uh, you know, in terms of as as a sutta, this is this sutta is uh, in some ways quite unusual. The the story of Sunetta and the story of the past is is not very common. That kind of story. There's a few other places we have similar ones, uh, but the sutta itself is quite unusual. In many respects, a story about the seven sons, I believe, doesn't occur anywhere else in the suttas. Is that right? No. There's, there's various other places where it talks about the evolution, change of the world and, and so on, um, but never anywhere where it talks about the seven sons. So quite an unusual sutta in many ways, and I think you'll agree quite a, a challenging and powerful one, and uh, a very, very dramatic illustration of the teaching of uh, impermanence uh, taken even up to that uh, very uh, 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 sort of vast cosmic scale. So, Alan, yes, you were going to say? Ah. Right. Uh huh. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, and you're not going to get reborn. Essentially, essentially, that's what it means, right? So basically, it means I'm not going to get reborn again. And uh, so I, I, I was just, I was just. Curious, because I didn't know, because if you know the Pali and you're familiar with the idioms, then it's clear that that's what it means. Um, but often when people read it, they don't actually interpret it in that way. So I was just curious about whether that, whether, whether that meaning was actually conveyed by the English or not, uh, or whether it should be translated more explicitly to just you know, translate as something, I'm not going to get reborn again or something. Yeah, I mean, that's a more idiomatic translation. Wayne. Becoming, yeah, becoming is a dreadful translation. It does, it, no more become, I'm not, there's no more becoming in the future. We, this is it's not even English anymore. This is what they call Buddhist hybrid English. Uh, uh, this was a this was a, a um, hangover from the kind of colonial era of translation, uh, and uh, yeah, there's various kind of historical reasons for it, but. We, becoming you, you should should never be used for bahava. One reason being that bahava is a countable noun, whereas becoming is not. If you think about the Ratna Sutta, it says nate bhavang atmang adianti. That one does not take up an eighth bhava. Okay, so it's talking about a stream enterer. So a stream enterer only has seven lives left, so they don't take up an eighth bhava. So you can't say it doesn't take up an eighth becoming, right? It doesn't work. But you can say it doesn't take up an eighth existence. Or an eighth life, perhaps, yeah, something like that. Actually, life is 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 not a bad translation for bhava. Also, yeah, there's no future lives. Yeah. Seven things. Uh huh. Yeah. Why? Between, what makes the difference? Ah, well, I guess how, how hard you practice, you know, and how how well developed your faculties are. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Do you do you, do you say, oh, now I'm a stream enterer? Hey, take it easy. Yeah, whoopee, go on holidays, right? No more getting reborn in the hell realms. No more bad rebirth. I can go to heaven seven times. 
right? Or do you say, no, I need to redouble my efforts and do some meditation? Yeah. I was just saying that in the uh, there is a sutta uh, which brings up precisely this point that uh, Bandhusrata was saying that you know uh, you can sort of chill out and take it easy if you uh, if you are a stream manager or you can practice harder, and the Buddha actually makes that specific point in a certain place uh, uh, where he says that he didn't give the teaching about the saupadisesa uh, nibbana, uh, which means the nibbana with remainder, uh, which is like all the other areas. Uh, well, there's different ways. Of this, this term can be understood in different ways. But one understanding is that the uh, nibbana with remainder refers to all the areas, uh, apart from the arahant, which is the nibbana without remainder. Uh, and he says that the reason I didn't give this teaching before uh, is uh, because I was afraid people were going to kind of, you know, take it easy and not, not practice hard. <laughs> that was exactly that point. Yeah. Thanks, Pandit. So I think we probably we're supposed to finish at four fifteen, aren't we? Is that right? Something like that. So we should probably wrap up unless there's any last questions before we finish. Yes, we have a last question. Okay. Ayatanda, sorry. three different terms okay thanks for that so the, yeah I wondered that myself um, so usually in those kinds of cases the different terms are actually just synonyms so uh, but I also didn't know what this term so let me just have a look uh, okay anicca bhikkhave sankara so sankaras that is energies or um, conditioned phenomena are impermanent anicca adhuva Bhikkhave Sankara. Okay, so uh, Sankaras are Adhuva. Bhikkhavodhi translates as, what is it? Um, as unstable. Adhuva, Adhuva, unstable. Uh, unstable? Adhuva, impermanent, unstable. Not, it really means make kind of not, almost like not consistent or something, doesn't it? Not, yeah, anyway, something like that. Uh, not stable. And uh, Anasasika. Anas, anasasika. Oh, that's a kind of unusual word. Anasasika. Anasasika. I don't know. I don't even know if I know that word is. Anasasika. Uh, second paragraph. Sasika. Unreliable. Bit unusual, isn't it?
Yeah, anyway, quite an unusual, a bit of an unusual word there, okay? So, uh, there you go, anasasika, uh, sankara. Mm. No, no, this is a Thai idiom where, they, where, where the word sankara has come to mean in Thailand that uh, uh, the body, and the reason for that is, is, uh, that is really just that in... In, in, in the Thai funeral chanting, you always chant anichavata sankara, and uh, people think that means that your body is impermanent because it's just what happened is you just died, so you chant anichavata sankara. So in Thailand, the kind of idiomatic meaning often is that sankhan means the body, uh, but that's not what it means in Pali at all. Sankara in Pali means uh, anything which is conditioned. Okay, so your body, your mind, your feelings, anything in the world is all sankara. Yeah, all sankara is conditioned. Everything, yeah, yeah. Actu actually, that verse, Anichavata Sankara, is not really appropriate to recite at funerals, even though we do it all the time, and even though I did it this morning uh, for the funeral chant, because it's actually talking about Parinibbana, and it's recited when the Buddha passed away that all the Sankaras are impermanent. So it's when the Buddha dies, or an Arahant dies, then yes, th that way you say all conditions are impermanent. And that's why the last verse of the, the last line of the verse, it says, sang sukho, that their passing away is bliss, right? So this is a bit hard to explain that when you're at a funeral or something like that, and you're trying to explain to people, actually what this means is that, you know, everyone's got to die, and when you die, we're all really happy. Uh, no, that's not quite what it means, right? It means that when someone attains parinibbana and they pass away, and all sankharas, yeah, pass away, then yeah, their stilling is bliss. Yeah. So, uh, but uh, go on. Uh huh. This is another meaning of sankara. It's another idiomatic meaning. Actually, in, in, in generally speaking, entire usage, you really have three meanings for it. One is it means the body, the rangai. Another meaning is sankhan means uh, like thoughts, kit prong dang. Yeah. And so that's, that's kind of related to one of the meanings in Pali of Sankara in the five khandhas, uh, something like that. Not exactly that, but it's not dissimilar. Uh, but, in, but there's also a third meaning where it means uh, everything which is conditioned. Okay, so every, basically everything that isn't Nibbana yeah, is a Sankara. This is a, that's like a philosophical meaning. Yeah. So in Pali, actually, has both those last two meanings. It has so the first meaning, not really. Yeah. That's right. Yes. Yeah, you can. Yeah. Yep. Yes. Yes. yes I just, I just wanted to get back to this uh, idea where the Buddha talks about the, uh, you know, the sun, the starting with one sun and then getting more and more heat from the sun, uh, and things gradually drying up, and eventually the whole earth being burnt up. And I find it, I find it quite stunning, actually. I find it quite amazing this whole, this whole scenario that actually isn't the suit, as the Buddha is talking about this, right? Uh, 
And uh, I, well, I guess what I'm wondering, it, it is so close to what actually is happening in, in astronomy according to the you know, future of the universe, according to astronomical calculations or whatever. It's so close uh, that it's almost undistinguish uh, undistinguishable. The only difference is that instead of seven suns, you have one sun which expands until it swallows up the planet. Uh, and I, I guess what I'm wondering, and, and I mean, I know you are a bit of ex expert in mythology and that sort of stuff. Is there any other mythology which has this idea, which is even remotely similar? And if there isn't, then it's, it might point to the fact that the Buddha actually knows this, by possibly by uh, recollecting past universes or something like that. Do you have any any response to that? Well, that's right, yeah, and the Western, Western cosmology has always been very limited and very small. Yeah, they are, yeah. Uh, with the, the seven suns appearing and so on, I, I, I can't, look, I mean, the reality is that if you look in, in the mythology for long enough, you pretty much find just about anything, you know, so I'm, I'm reluctant to say you don't find it, but I can't think of any examples where it talks about that off the top of my head, but there, there may well be examples. Yeah, but I mean, more typically, most mythology tends to be talking about the past, though. It tends to be talking about how did, how did this come to be. Yeah, yeah, rather than what's going to happen in the future. But you do find that as well, yeah. Uh-huh. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wayne. Sure, still an effect, and, and sometimes uh, Jupiter could go supernova as well, or go nova, or ignite, or whatever. I don't know. Anyway, uh, we should probably finish up and pay respects to the triple gem.